Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. Amen. Hey, can I ask you a question this morning? If you were to die today, which, you know, we don't like to think about that because, well, we want to live for a long, long time. I know I'm, I'm rooting for that. Um, but if you were to die today, and it's possible, it doesn't matter if you're 12, it doesn't matter if you're 22, could be 72, today could be the very last day that you get a breath in you. If you were to die today, are you absolutely certain that you would stand before God and He would say to you, Welcome. If he were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? What, what would your answer be? Would it be that you've tried to do the best you can in life? You've tried to let your good outweigh your bad? Would it be that, well, you've been, you've been faithful in being kind to people? Would it be that you've, you're a church member? You know, the Bible says it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of works. So no matter how much you do on this earth in terms of being good, all of your good falls short of God's glory. You know, the Bible says that it's a gift of God. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's a gift of God. And it's for whoever would ask for it. So this morning, if you're not certain where you would spend eternity... And really a better question than that, if you're not certain that you're right with God, right now, you could say to him, God, here I am. You know, it's actually not a prayer asking Jesus into your heart. We do that because that's a way of kind of helping us to walk through it. But reality, it's faith in Jesus Christ. It's saying to him, Jesus, I want to belong to you. And the cool thing is, you actually don't find God God finds you. And then at some point you go, wait a minute. God is right here. So will you take a moment with me? Just bow your head and close your eyes. Before I get into the message today, I just want to ask you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, would you trust Him now? Say, God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that my sin condemns me and it separates me from you. But Jesus, I know that you came to earth And you were crucified, buried, and then rose to life. And so I believe that and I trust in that for my salvation. I turn away from my sin and I turn away from myself and I turn to you. And I ask you, God, to save me in Jesus' name. You know, with a heart that expresses that to God. Maybe not in those exact words, but a heart that that says to God, God... I do need you. And I asked you in my life. The Bible says that you're saved. Which means you now are what the Bible calls born again. Which means you're now part of a new family. And the family is called the church. 
The people of God is a worldwide family. It's kind of funny. Uh, some fancy preachers, when they travel a bunch, when people, you know, when you sit on a plane and people say, so what do you do? Right? That's the first question that comes out. Some people have gotten creative. I've done it some, not a whole lot. They've gotten creative. So what do you do? Instead of going, I'm a preacher, which, by the way, if you don't want to talk, if you don't want the person to talk to you, that's what you say. If you're like hoping for one of those quiet rides on an airplane, just tell them, oh, I'm a preacher. <clears throat> right? Most of them. So here's, but, but if you do want to talk, you say, well, I, I work for a global organization. Really? Well, what do you do? Well, I, I actually, uh, my, my company um, has members all over the world of every nationality, and, and we have resources that are unlimited. <laughs> really? What do you do? Well, you know, my, uh, my, my company is really more like a family. In fact, we, we don't sell anything. We, 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 we give things to people all over the world. Really? What do you do? I'm an ambassador for Jesus. Oh, okay. Now I won't talk to you. No, it, it's really cool because when you become a follower of Jesus, you become part of a family that is multicultural, multicolored. That's why there's no room for racism within the church. Because your brother from another mother may not be another color, or may be another color, but they're still your brother. Your sister from another mister. Hey, does that work? Okay, good. So that's why, that's why we cannot have prejudice. That's why we can't even have favoritism. That's why we can't say, we're number one. We're number one because in another place, there are people who are part of our family who in God's eyes are just the same, right? That's why we're to be different. So if you're born again, if you trust in Jesus, you become part of a family that really is global. And the thing about the scripture today is this. It gives us a real true picture of this family. Acts chapter 4, we're going to finish starting in verse 32 to 37. And then we're going to look into chapter 5. Now there's a problem here in that the, the, the verses and the chapters of the Bible were added after the Bible was written and compiled. And it was really just a, a matter of form and a matter of, as you're teaching, to help people know where things are. But when it was written, it was written more in a letter form. And so the unfortunate part about chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that there really shouldn't, there, there is no break here. The end of chapter 4 is actually the beginning of what is said in chapter 5. So we have to take it together. And to be honest with you, this is the untitled sermon because there's, it's impossible for me to choose one title. There is so much in this text that we could really say that's the title that I'm just going to say, pick your own title. At the end of the message today, you literally are going to walk away, I'm praying anyways, with one thing that God has spoken to you about. Maybe some other things, but one thing. Pick your title based on that. But in chapter 4, verse 32, we have this, this, this overarching picture of what the church was. But there's a hint. It wasn't just beautiful. It was also messy. And it was all at the same time. Verse 32, all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, 
For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money to the, of, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyrus, Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So the scripture says all the believers were in one heart and mind, which meant that they were unified. There was a unity amongst the church that, that is always a struggle for every local church and every global church and the whole global church from that time until now. We have to fight. Now, how many of you in your head just went, for the right? Did anybody do that besides me? Oh, let me see your hand, really, honestly. Okay. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, then I'm so sorry. <laughs> Gosh, I'm so ADD. It's not even funny. I normally just don't share it. Okay, I really do. You, we have to fight for unity. Why? Because unity means that we're together. But here's the cool part. That this passage doesn't say that they all thought the same, they all looked the same, they all acted the same. The overarching point is this. They were unified in mind and in heart. In other words, they were going the same direction. I promise you, and I know this because humans are humans are humans. You can't even get a family to agree all the time, right? Try having a couple kids and have all of them have different eating habits. And then give it to mom or dad to make the menu for the night, right? Our philosophy because of that became you have two choices, eat it or starve. I mean, that's all we could do, right? Because it was, everybody had their own opinion. But here's the thing. Even though we all had our own opinion of what we liked, we still sat at the table. We still had conversation. And that's the way the church was. They didn't all think exactly the same, but on the big things, on the important things, they recognized Jesus is Lord. He came and he, he, he was crucified, buried, and rose again. We as the people of God are to be together in one. So they had the same heart and they had the same mind, which meant that they demonstrated love to each other. It is much easier to love each other when we're unified. Don't you know that the biggest trick of the devil is to put a divide right in God's people? The thing that he wants more than anything else is to separate God's people because if he can separate God's people, he has weakened the force. And he does that in marriages, right? He does that in families. He does that in friends. Division is always a possibility because the enemy knows that where two or more are gathered, what? There Jesus is. But when there's division, then we start fighting amongst ourselves and don't, we're not worried about proclaiming the gospel. And so they were in one heart and one mind. There was a love for each other that was a unique but not a strange. I guess I should say strange but not unique. It was, it was strange in that it wasn't normal for everybody else to do this. And it's not normal today. In our world, the self is, is self-preservation and what do I want and what do I like and what makes me happy seems to be what we tend to gravitate towards, right? I'm thinking of churches in particular and I think of, don't hear this the wrong way, please, because it's certainly not my heart and I'm certainly not trying to condemn any church that, that does this, but have you ever considered how 
when we're church shopping, what, what the question we're asking is, what do they have from me? I haven't church shopped in a long time, right? But, but I remember being there at one point. What do they have for my kids? What do they have for my, my family? What do they have for me? What do I get out of it? There's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with that. But at some point, are we not missing the point? At some point, should we not be asking, what do I have for them? Because the church is not a one-way deal. And frankly, in the last 20 or 30 years, in an attempt for the church to grow, when I say the church, I mean the Western church largely, but in an attempt for us to grow, we've changed a message to where it's attractive to people because we want people to be attracted. We've had all kinds of programs and things to get people to come because we want them to to find that that there's something for them. But with all of that, there there can be, not always, but there can be, a total missing of the point of the church. And that is the church is a family. And no family is okay being separated all the time. Right? This is what's going on in our house now. We have two family members that are gone. And it's hard. Now fortunately we have another family member who's still here. But... but if we lose any of our family, it's tough. Why? Because they're family, right? We don't always get along, but the fact that we're there is important. Folks, the fact that we are a family is what makes us unique in this world. Now, I just want you to think about it, okay? Look at the people next to you. Now, we're not as diverse as I would like for us to be. Part of that's just demographically where we are, right? But we are diverse in a way. I mean, we've got professionals, we've got uh, uh, business owners, we've got homemakers, we've got um, singles, we've got marrieds, we've got divorced, we've got just about every kind of person, right? Would, Would the people around you be your normal group of friends if you weren't part of the church? I mean, that's a question. Would, would, would you hang out with each other if you didn't know each other and didn't have a common bond of the gospel? Maybe so, but probably, probably most of us wouldn't because we just have different circles. But the church realized that their common bond was Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and rose again. And so they made it a point to be together as the people of God, and they chose to love each other. And their love was not in word alone, it was in deed. The Bible tells us that everyone who had a need had their need met by the people of God. That was a unique, radical love, wasn't it? Now here's why it's difficult for me, and I assume it's the same for you, to to live this out and to flesh this out in today's culture. Because we live in a vastly more prosperous time than they lived. We also live in a vastly more um, scattered time than they lived. We have more information. We have more mobility. We have more um, um, influences or influencers. Those things alone are enough to separate us. I mean, just look right now. We're separated in rows. I am convinced that just this much space makes us worshiping together a little bit awkward. Would you agree? 
I hear it multiple times throughout the week. Man, church just isn't the same. It's just a little awkward. It's kind of, kind of strange. Can I tell you what that is? It's because when we walk in, we're used to hugging each other. We're used to standing close and talking face to face. We're used to slapping each other high fives if you're dudes, right? I mean, we're used to sitting next to each other and looking and being like this. But the, the, the literal physical distance we are feeling in our souls. But think about it this way. This actually is a better picture of the struggle that we face on a larger scale. Because every one of us today, we're going to get in our car, we're going to drive somewhere to our home. Most of us don't live next to each other. In fact, I'm just curious. Is there anybody in here not in the same family who lives next to or within half a block of, of somebody else in this room. Anybody? Can I see your hand? Okay, a few, right? A few. This church, they could all get to each other's house in probably five or six minutes walking slowly. Jerusalem wasn't that big. I mean, if you go to Old City Jerusalem, you can walk from one end to the other in just a few minutes. And if you live on the outskirts, it doesn't even take long to go there. And so for us to try to get this kind of connection, we have to fight for it. We have to be intentional. Now, just so we're, so we're understand, um, Amos, as you live 20 minutes down that way, is it 20? Down 98? Okay. Leanne, you live in Pace. You live in, what do they call that place, Tara? It's, that's not Milton. That's Boondock. <laughs> you live with Robinson Point, right? So it's faux Milton. It's south of Milton, right? Um, you guys live in Navarre, right? I mean, you live right around the corner. That's cool. I can see, I, can, I pass by your house every day coming to work. So do y'all, right? You guys live close, don't you? You guys live in Pensacola, right? All the way over there. Am I missing anybody? And, and this is not even all of us. So how do we have this kind of love for each other when we live so far away? Because we don't see each other every day. They saw each other every day. They ate dinner together every day. They were praying together every single day. We see each other once a month, twice a month, maybe three times a month. Because now this is what we have Sunday morning. But you know what? God did not lessen the command of family just because we have these obstacles. It's the exact same expectation. Love one another. Which means we have to be intentional about knowing each other. We have to be intentional about connecting with each other. And here's what I finally came to grips with as a pastor. I finally came to grips with the fact that I cannot know everyone like I want to know everyone. That's a good thing for me to realize. Because I carried a lot of weight for a long time that if I didn't know everyone like I want to know everyone, that, that I was a failure and that you would somehow you know, leave or whatever. And then I realized, wait a minute. I'm just part of a much bigger purpose and a much bigger family. I'm just grandpa in the deal, right? I mean, if you look at a family, grandpa is kind of the guy that they sometimes go to and say, hey, what do you think? But they're perfectly content working in the kitchen or working out yard, doing their stuff without grandpa ever having to be a part of it. Y'all know what I'm saying here, right? 
But as the people of God, we have this unique, strange, special, beautiful, marvelous connection through the gospel that we have to fight for intentionally. Part of that is being vulnerable, being honest, and learning to communicate. And God gave us a perfect illustration of that, didn't he? It's called marriage. Right? If you can be married, you can do anything. Right? Am I right? If you can be married, you can do anything. Because in marriage, you love each other, and you have to choose to like each other. Right? Just the way it is. But God created marriage, and then he also said that the church is a picture of marriage. He said there's family, there's marriage. That's what the church is. And so these believers, they didn't claim that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, careful here, because if we're not careful, we'll be tempted to think that this means that nobody owned anything and that it was just, you could come into my house and grab whatever you want and that's cool. That's not cool. I suggest you not come into my house and grab whatever you want, okay? But if there's a genuine need, I am responsible for helping to meet that need. It was a recognition of who owned what. And here's where I think we get it wrong. And there, there's two, two legs of this. We get it wrong in thinking that we own anything. Folks, if you're a follower of Jesus, you don't own anything. You are simply a manager or a steward. That's what we are. But I got good news for you. If you don't own it, then when it breaks, it ain't your job to make it fixed. Like literally, I have said before, when my vehicle has broken down, Lord, you're going to have to fix this because your car is broken. I wasn't being rude. or I wasn't really being um, sacrilegious. I was, on, I was literally expressing my belief that if God owns it, he's responsible for it. Now, his response was, yeah, but I'm letting you drive it, so you fix it. Okay, but don't worry. You can fix it with the money I gave you. So if we recognize that God owns all things, then we hold everything we have with open hands to come and to go as God sees fit. And the cool thing about that is when we hold all of our possessions with open hands, we don't have to worry about losing anything. You only worry about losing that which you hold tightly to. You can't lose something that you hold loosely because you recognize that it comes and it goes. So that, that's the one leg. The other leg is from a position, that, that's from the position of, of the, 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 need, the, uh, the provision, from the position of the need though, this is where it's hard for me. It's hard to know what a need really is. Do y'all struggle with that? You see somebody who says, I need this. Okay, is that really a need? And are you doing as much to meet that need as you're asking me to do to meet that need? This is why it's tough because we are very blessed in this country and most of us in this room are doing okay. Some are doing better than others, but most of us have eaten in the last 24 hours. Probably. Probably. Most of us have a place that we're sheltering 
in. Most of us are wearing clothes. All of us are wearing clothes. I can confirm that right now. We're all... But, 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 but none of us are, are living in abject poverty. And to make it even more difficult, many of the needs that we have are a result of our own lack of management. And so how do we as the church meet needs when the fundamental problem that caused that need is not dealt with? Do you all wrestle with this besides just me? Because I want to be this kind of Christian. I want to be this kind of church. But how can you be this kind of church in the world that we live in now? And the best I can answer that is this. When God says meet it, we meet it. And when God says don't, we don't. And when God says nothing, we do the best we can do. That's it. And I know that's not much of an answer, but that really is the answer. And I think that means that we're walking in the Spirit. Sometimes a non-need that is claimed a need actually should be met by us because God is going to use our gift as a means of grace to that person for them to find the goodness of God in it. And then sometimes there's a need that we want to meet and God says, don't meet the need. Even though we have what we need to meet the need, sometimes He says, do not do it. Why? Because God's got somebody else in mind to meet the need. I remember Michael Jr. was talking about this a little bit. Maybe you remember it too. He said, if, if somebody, if you have two bottles of water and somebody comes up and says, hey, I'm thirsty, what do you do? He said, the obvious answer is, well, you give them one of your bottles of water. He said, maybe. Maybe that's the right answer. See, if you did that, you could easily solve that person's problem. But what if the person behind you also has two bottles of water, but they're a little stingier? And what if they're wrestling with generosity? And what if they're wrestling with ownership? If you give your bottle of water, then that person never has to wrestle with their own heart. And what if, it, what if it's that God put that thirsty person on that corner, in that place, so that that person behind you could be the one to have to wrestle with God to meet the need? Does that make sense? So, the bottom line is the church was wise and they were loving and they provided so that everybody had their basic needs met. This was much more real to them because it was becoming an increasingly, diff increasingly difficult time to be a believer. So some people were losing jobs and some people were losing incomes. They didn't have social security and welfare. and They didn't have government assistance. They didn't have bail bailouts. If you didn't have somebody feed you and you were a widow, you didn't have a job, you were going to starve. Much, much different. But the Bible says, verse 33, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord, and much grace was given upon them all. So we know that they were a loving group of people. They were a family that genuinely loved each other in word and in deed. We also know that they testified faithfully to the gospel. And the gospel, the message of Christ, was, was, was the apex of that. The central theme of the gospel was the resurrection of Jesus. So any church that is faithful in loving each other and faithful in the gospel is a church that will find favor and the grace of God. 
I want us to remain in that place. My desire is that we would continually be a church that outloves each other and that outtells the world. I guess that makes sense. We say we 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 share the story so much that it's just natural. Because that's a church that God will bless. Now be careful because it doesn't mean that God will bless us necessarily with stuff. But what it does mean is that God will bless us with His blessings. So I talked to a pastor friend of mine this week and he told me a really cool story. He said that there was a a missionary that he was friends with in another country. And they had a heart and a passion to build an orphanage. And they were, they were going to raise funds to do so. They needed about $100,000. It was 100, I think 107 to be exact. And they wanted to, um, to build this. And they were thinking, we don't know how in the world we're going to build this. We don't have the funds. And we just, this is impossible. But this is, a, this is something God said for us to do. Well, my friend had a family member who... Um, great-great-grandparents or whatever who may be believers but, but never tithing. And, and, and the, the grandfather just, just didn't believe in giving at all. And the grandfather died and the control of the estate went to the grandma. But she was a believer who did believe in tithing. And so she asked, she said, is there a place that I could give some of what should have been given all along. My friend said, yeah, there's a ministry and they want to build this orphanage. You, you, you could help them. She wrote a check for $100,000 and said, give this, but don't tell them who it's from. So my friend made the transfer there. And this guy in this other country said, Whoop. You know, one of those eyeball things going like this. Crazy generous. Here's why I'm telling you that. This was, a, this, was a pat, this was a guy in another country who heard from God, was being faithful, and they were struggling day to day to day to day to day, barely having enough per day, but having enough each and every day. And God met that vision that God gave to him out of nowhere from a total stranger that had been, and he had been working on it. God had been de- working on this for years and years and years. Do you see how the plan of God works? When God says something, he always does it. Amen? Turn to the person next to you and say, that's good. Or at least that's a good story, right? But I want to tell you another story. The scripture says... Well, I'm going to tell you another story in a minute. Let me, let me get this, this first. So, it says, With great power they continued to testify, and much grace was upon them all. Now, there's two, two ways that that can be taken. Much grace was upon them all. It could mean that um, they were finding grace from others. That the people were giving them favor. The word grace means unmerited favor. And so they were receiving grace. They were receiving favor. It could have been that they were receiving favor from others, which was probably there, but that's probably not what this means. They were probably, this means probably that they were receiving much grace from God. Here's the thing this week as I was reading this over and over and over. The more grace the people gave, the more grace the people got. 
The more grace the people got, the more grace the people gave. The more grace the people gave, the more grace the people got. But the more grace the people got, the what? More grace. The, it's this circular, circular nature of grace. Here's another title for you, that, or you can figure out a title. We live in a world right now that is pegged out. We were talking about this in staff meeting this past week. We are redlining. Normal life means doing life, stress. Okay, normal life, stress. Normal life, stress. But here's where we are. Normal life, march, stress. Am I right? And so we have been peg pegging the stress meter and there's not been, a, there's not been a, a cessation of it. It's just constant. We are at our peak of stress. You've got coronavirus. You've got um, uh, the election stuff coming up. You've got riots. You've got racial tensions. You've got murder hornets. <laughs> I'm waiting for them, man. I am ready. I bought one of those salt guns, right? That way I can assault the killer bees. It's an assault rifle. We are pegged up here. And if you don't believe me, just, just turn on Facebook. You've got ordinary moms going ballistic and postal over candy bars. You've got people on the side of, on the street corners yelling at the world. They're hating everybody. Guys, that is, an, that is a sign that people are absolutely at the peak of their stress. If you have children in school, you are stressed, right? If you're a teacher, you are stressed. But here's the thing. If you're a physician, a medical worker, you are stressed. But here's the thing. In a world of crazy stress, we are God's grace. And we're to give that grace liberally, lavishly. We're not to give it the way I give Tic Tacs. I am stingy with my Tic Tacs. Even with myself. It's like one Tic Tac. I'll suck that thing for 30 minutes. And then another Tic Tac, right? Because you only got so many Tic Tacs. And we're supposed to pull the top off and dump it out. You remember, I don't know if you had a mom like this, but you remember the, the bubblegum ration? The Wrigley's Spearmint ration? Been sitting in the bottom of her purse for two months. That one lonely stick, saving, she's saving it for a special moment. That time of crisis, right? Hey mom, you got a piece of gum? Yeah, so he digs it out. And she rips it in half, gives you half. How many of y'all had that happen? She rips it in half, gives, it tastes like all the makeup and stuff from the bottom of the purse, which you're like, I got half of this gum, man. I mean, it, it's like, <laughs> did y'all really have, I'm not alone in that, huh? Did they learn this? That's like an old mom trick, I guess. It, it's like there was a bubblegum shortage in the world, and, and, and they, were, they were doing their part to save the world. Man... It, it, sh it should be like a giant machine that you bust the glass and bubble gum everywhere. 
If you hear nothing else today, which I hope you do, but give grace lavishly. Throw it out. We don't have to worry that we're going to run out because guess what? We got a God who gives it back every single day. You remember in the Old Testament when the people of God were hungry and God said, don't worry about preparing. I'm going to feed you in the morning. I'm going to feed you at night. And in the next morning, if you held anything from yesterday, it will be rotten. But when you wake up, I'm going to feed you again and I'm going to feed you in the evening. And the next morning, I'm going to feed you and I'm going to feed you. And I think God was saying, I want you to trust me and I want you to realize that I am the owner and the author and the creator and the sustainer of all things. They were given grace from God, and they were giving grace from God. There are no needy persons, verse 34. From time to time, those who own lands or houses sold them. They brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then they give an example. Verse 36, Joseph... From Cyprus, he was a Levite whom the apostles called Barnabas. Note that. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So the author of Acts, Dr. Luke, he was a physician, he gave an example of this guy named Barnabas. A couple of things I want to say here. Number one, the example was, was to be an example of what was right so that he could then counter that with what was wrong. So he was saying, let me show you the right way because I'm also going to show you the wrong way. We'll get to that in a second. But Barnabas didn't sell land and then take it and say, okay, you're going to do this with the money and this with the money and this with the money. He literally said, I sold this piece of land. The Lord put it on my heart to, get to, to sell it. Here is the funds from it. Do with it as the Lord leads you, apostles. There is something freeing and, and, and quite frankly, it is... It is an act of faith to, to sell something that is your inheritance or something that is, that is, is, is adds to your net worth and say, I'm going to give all of that to the apostles' feet. I'm not going to control it. I'm just going to give it. That was an act of obedience. But it was also a recognition of who owned what. Barnabas had it right. He knew who owned what. I had this happen actually not too long ago. I don't know, several months ago, a handful of months ago, I had somebody say, I need to meet with you. And I said, okay, great. So we met. And, and this guy said, uh, we talked, you know, about all kinds of stuff, fishing, hunting, thing, diving, whatever. And then he goes, well, here's the reason I called you here today. He pulled out a, a wad of cash and he said, I believe the Lord wants me to give this to you. Do with it whatever you want. Spend it, take a vacation, use it. I just, I feel like God told me to give it. So here it is. You know, that's a little uncomfortable for me. It's kind of weird, you know, because you're like, you feel this pressure right there, right? And I, and I told him, I said, look, here's what I'm going to do. This is what I do when this happens. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens some. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to hold it until God tells me what to do with it. I think it was that afternoon or that evening the Lord spoke to me. He said, give it to this family who is struggling. We have some good friends who their son was perfectly normal 
on December 31st. They were at our house. They had dinner with us. Their son was perfectly normal. There was nothing wrong at all. Within a few weeks, he had become almost completely unable to function. Couldn't bathe, couldn't eat, couldn't speak, couldn't stand. What was the name of that thing? Pods? Shannon? Pandas. Somehow or another, he contracted something that basically debilitated him. And so this mom and dad had to spend 24-7 keeping their son alive. And as a result, with the pandemic and then having their deal with their son, they lost all of their income. And that evening, somehow or another, I was reminded of that. And the Lord said, that's where the money goes. I said, man, this is so cool. So we called them and we said, hey, can we bring you dinner next week? So we brought some dinner and we all ate together and then we, we talked and laughed. And before we left, we were sitting down in a circle and we were just sharing some stories. And the dad, the father, said, well, I'm going to tell you how good God is. He said, he's Brazilian and so his family's back in Brazil. He said, this week the Lord spoke to me. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if we should do that. And I'm certainly not sure my wife wants to do this, but I think we should do it. But I said to my wife, I said, we need to send $100 to my family. They're really struggling. Can we do that? And the wife said that she wrestled a little bit and she said, no, let's do it. It's what the Lord said. And he said, so we sent $100, but, but I feel like the Lord, we feel good because we honored the Lord in that. And I said, well, funny you mention that. And I reached in my back pocket and I pulled out one of those bank envelopes with 10 $100 bills in it. And I said, I want you to know that a week ago I met with somebody who gave this to me and said, use it where the Lord directs it. And so this is from the Lord. He answered your prayer a week ago. By the way, can y'all do the math on this? We all started crying and it was like a boohoo fest in that whole room. I actually called the person who gave that to me that night and I say, let me tell you what God did through you. He, because of your obedience, this family can pay some of their rent this month or can pay their rent this month. And then I wonder who got the better end of that deal. Was it the giver? Was it the receiver? Huh? It was the conduit. I promise you I had more fun. Let me tell you why. Because it was like God was saying, I'm going to give you a 50,000 foot view of what I'm doing all over the world every single day through my people. Here's what's really cool. So I'm preaching this this morning at First Baptist, right? As I'm telling this illustration, I find out afterwards, my dad is, is a member of First Baptist. After the service, my dad comes up and says, Jeff, as you were telling the illustration, I got a text from Morgan Miller. Morgan has a ministry in Pensacola, and my dad is on the board of directors for that ministry. And the text said, hey, there's a family in need. Can we give them $1,000 out of our general fund? <laughs> my dad responded, well... 
I think the answer is yes, because we're just talking about $1,000 right now. How cool is that, right? The bottom line is, the illustration of Joseph was for us to know how to do it right. But we don't always get it right. I'm going to close here. But let me make note that his name was Joseph, but his nickname was a description of his character. They didn't call him Joseph. They called him Barnabas. He was a son of encouragement. Now we all call people by different nicknames. Some of them we probably shouldn't repeat in here. Right? Because some of them are not endearing. But the truth is, every one of us should have a nickname that's based on our character. The graceful one. Kindness embodied. Shannon used to be called Sparkle Plenty. I used to be called Jeffrey some more. <laughs> Seriously, I know that shocks you. I had a neighbor when I was a kid. I was like, I, he was like Mr. Wilson and I was like Dennis. Poor guy. I should apologize to him if I could ever find him. Name was Norman. I'd go over and I, he, he'd be working on something and I'd walk over and I would just, hey, what is that? How do you do that? And trust me, when you're working on something like a vehicle, you don't want a kid coming over asking questions. So he named me Jeffrey some more. Because here comes Jeffrey some more. It fit. What is your nickname? Faithful? Steady? Lover of God? Loudmouth? Jerk? Pain? <laughs> the good news is we can always make our own title. Simply by how we live. I need to end. I, I said that like a hundred thousand times, I know. But I want you to know this. Chapter 5 tells us the other side. Ananias and Sapphira, they sold some land. And they made it seem like they gave all to the Lord. They lied to the people of God. And in doing so, they lied to God. And God struck down Ananias dead right, right on the front of the church. And then his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter gave her a chance. Is this all the money you sold the land for? By the way, it wasn't a sin to hold some of the money back. It wasn't, the fact that they held it back wasn't the problem. It was the fact that they lied about it. And, and, and Sapphira, the wife, said, well, yeah, that was all. And then he heard, she heard the words from Peter. The feet of the men who carried your husband's body out are coming to get you now. And she struck, she died. And the Bible says in the very last verse, in verse um, 10, At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. The young men that came and found her dead carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. So what title do you give today? What part of this is for you? How is God speaking to you? Will you close your eyes and bow your head? Father, I want to thank you for your church. 
I want to thank you, God, for their faithfulness. And I want to thank you for their, for their humanity. Lord, I want to thank you that we don't come to you perfect. We come to you broken and in need of a perfect Savior. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people to truly love each other the way that you've called us to love each other. Help us to have a supernatural, Christ-like love. Father, I pray that in the, in the scattered world in which we live, you would help us to fight to remain a family. Lord, I pray that we would give grace to each other when, when somebody else doesn't do things the way we want them to or expect them to. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that person's agency and to give them grace. Father, I pray that as we wrestle with how to be salt and light in a world that is increasingly violent and increasingly divided, may we rise above that and be your people with wisdom and with lavishly given grace. Father, may we recognize that you own all that we have and we are to disperse that according to what you say. Father, I pray that we would be honest and truthful. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for being in this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about Sword Point Church 